How are y'all doing? You doing good today? Oh, y'all look great. I've missed you. I'm totally messing with you. I have missed you, but I don't talk like that yet. I know that it's coming soon, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I do not have a cowboy hat yet. I don't have boots. I'm not in a country western band, and I'm not drinking sweet tea. Right, but the Michigan roots still run deep. <laughs> yeah. But I have to tell you that we did become Nashville Predator fans really quick. Yes. Like at this point in the Stanley Cup series, if you're not a Nashville fan of Nashville, they kick you out of Nashville. We're a very inclusive area <laughs> down there. But uh, that is so great to be with all of you today and to have this chance to come back and jump into a series that you have been in for the last three weeks on transitions. And when Craig and Steve said, hey, can you talk a little bit about transitions? I'm, thought, I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm really going to have much to offer on this subject. Like, I just don't know how this really fits with our situation right now. Uh, I thought, yeah, this is going to be great because that's, that's where we are. I mean, we, we're still transitioning and uh, I'm excited to be able to share with you uh, a little bit more about what our journey has been like, but it actually fits within the teaching itself. So I'll give you a little bit of an update a little bit later on in the teaching. But this has been really fun for my wife and I. We just got back into town Friday night, spent the day at the beach yesterday because there's like no water in the Nashville area. I mean, they're totally lacking in that department. And we're also back for this week for the Institute of Biblical Context, which is a conference the friend and I started on biblical context. And so we're going to be uh, over the next three days, starting tomorrow, doing a conference here in West Michigan in Zealand. And so it just worked out really well. And and having conversations with Craig and Steve. And by the way, Steve has done a fabulous job these last three weeks. So I, I have been so blessed, like following along, watching the teachings and learning from Steve because he's transitioning, I'm transitioning, and I'm learning from him in his transition. And I hope that today's teaching is also helpful to him in the midst of his transition. And as I was talking with Craig and Steve several months ago about this, they said, hey, would you tackle the transition between the ascension of Jesus, where, God, where Jesus ascends back to God the Father, and then the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. Like, what was that transition, what's going on there? And I said, I would love to tackle that transition, because it is a fabulous transition. So, with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to begin there. Our fine ushers are coming down the aisles right now. If you would like to follow along today, just put up your hand and they will get you a copy of Scripture. But in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be back in Acts a little bit later on. So if you're not quite there yet, no worries. We're going to just read a few verses to start. It starts off this way. And the writer here is a guy by the name of Luke. And he's written a two-act book, if you will. One is called... The Gospel of Luke, or the biography in the life of Jesus called Luke, and Acts. It's the same writer. It's two volumes. So this is what Luke is going to reference here in volume two, back to volume one, which is book on, known as the Gospel of Luke. He says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus rises from the dead and spends 40 days with his disciples. And in that, it says that he talked to them about the kingdom of God, which on the one hand is kind of funny because Jesus' entire ministry was on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Everything he talked about was about that and he shows up and he spends 40 days talking to him. It's kind of like Jesus saying, okay, fellas, summer school. Like, there were some things that apparently didn't connect and we need to make some connections. And this is very important for Jesus to spend this time with his disciples because Jesus is then going to ascend and we're going to talk about this transition and then the coming of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down. And the thing that we want to do today is to go, what was Jesus doing with the disciples? What was he helping them to know, helping them to understand? Because I believe Jesus was filling in some gaps. He was making some connections. And what I want to do in our time today is help us to understand a bit of what I believe Jesus is connecting for the disciples. Because if we're going to transition well in our transitions and understand the disciples' transitions, we have to understand what Jesus was doing during those 40 days to help the disciples. And I think there's a couple of things that we can make a pretty strong assertion this is what Jesus was doing. So... What I'm about to do is we're going to launch into a a number of fun connections and details. Now, the great thing about this is that on the screen, by the way, Central still has the coolest screen in the country, all right? I love being able to come back and teaching on this screen. Everything you're going to see on the screen is going to be available in a PDF online with the teaching. If you don't know what a PDF is, ask your grandkids. And they will help you figure it out. So if you just want to kind of sit back and take in everything you're going to see, you can download this week and have access to because there's some really fascinating things going on and we're going to kind of move through this a bit quick. Jesus dies during the Passover season. Why was that significant? And how would Jesus help his disciples understand some connections around Passover? Well, let's begin with Passover. Passover begins in Exodus 12. Nine plagues have happened. The tenth plague is going to be the Passover plague in which God is going to then through that plague get the Israelites out of their slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. God comes to Moses and Aaron in Exodus 12 and he says, okay guys, here we go. This is going to be for you the first month. What is about to happen during this month, I want you to orient your entire calendar around because it's going to be around redemption. I am a God who rescues and redeems and your whole calendar system is going to start around this event right here. And here's what we're going to do in the midst of this Passover prep. On the 10th day, I want you to have each family of the Israelites select a lamb for themselves. It can come from either the sheep or the goats, most commonly came from the sheeps, from the sheep, but it's got to be a one-year-old male without blemish or defect. Choose it on the 10th day, lamb selection day. Then on the 14th day of this month, I want the families to slaughter that lamb at twilight. Now for us, our days begin and end at midnight. For the Jewish people, in the biblical text, there was evening and there was morning. It's at sunset. A day ends and begins at sunset. So let's roughly call this 6 p.m. Twilight is 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. 
So you slaughter the lambs during twilight. And then God says, I want you to take blood from the lamb and I want you to put over the door frames of your house because during the night, which is now going to be the 15th day, because we're after sunset, they're going to have a meal and then God's going to come through and he says, if I don't see blood on the door, the firstborn's being lost in that house. And so you have on the 15th day, it begins with this Passover meal. So it's in the evening, but we're past sunset and you're supposed to have the Passover meal. So God gives instructions in Exodus 12 about how they're supposed to cook the lamb. And then God says, I want you to eat this in haste. Now, once you eat the meal, that is when Passover commences, all right? This is where it kind of officially begins. And what else you find in Exodus 12 is that God goes also on this day, you are going to eat bread without leaven. It's unleavened bread. And not only today, but the next six days after. So it's seven days of eating unleavened bread. So the meal that they would have, any bread they would have, would be without yeast. And you go, well, what's that about the whole unleavened bread deal? Well, God is going to come and rescue the Israelites from their slavery. And he's going to act so quickly that he says the bread isn't even going to have time to rise. So I don't even want leaven in the bread because that unleavened bread, both now and in the future, every time you come together to celebrate this, which was supposed to be a yearly festival, you are going to eat bread without yeast for seven days because that bread is going to be representative of your freedom. It's going to symbolize your freedom and how I came to your rescue and redemption swiftly when I decided to act. And so you have this unleavened bread that's going to happen for these seven days. And so this is what is happening in the midst of this Passover unleavened bread deal that God initiates in Exodus chapter 12. So when it comes to Passover unleavened bread, it's understood to be the same holiday. In fact, once you get into the New Testament, you can just say unleavened bread and it encompasses the Passover sacrifices at the temple. You can just say Passover and it includes unleavened bread because they always go together. And so this was one of the three main pilgrim festivals in which God said, I want religious Jews from all over the world to stream up to Jerusalem to celebrate on an annual basis. And this was a seven-day festival remembering the Exodus story. And therefore, it was a freedom festival because it was when you commemorated how God rescued and redeemed you from your slavery in Egypt. But by the time of Jesus' day, it was not only a festival to remember how God rescued and redeemed you from the foreign pagan oppressive empire of Egypt, but you've got Rome on the scene doing the same thing. And now they're pleading with God to show up once again. And Passover started, commenced after the sacrifice in the temple, right? On the 14th day, the 15th day, you have a meal. And in Jesus' day, this was a festive meal. Whereas in the first Exodus, you eat it in haste. By the time of Jesus' day, we have the Passover Seder, which was this four to five hour meal. And there's four cups of wine. And there's all of this liturgy recounting the Exodus story and prayers and songs and all of that that we have record of in Jewish literature before the time of Jesus. And so this is during the time of Jesus' last week is Passover. So what I want to do is put up here, this is part of uh, and beyond Jesus' last week, and we're going to look at particularly these 14, 15, 16, 17. Now, 
In Jesus' day, you have, again, just like back in Exodus 12, God says, I want the lambs to be killed on the 14th day. Now, we're now dealing with the temple. So in the original Exodus story, the families did it in their home, but once they got into the land, this was to be done at the temple, and you have lots of families who have to kill, each has got to kill a lamb for their family, and so they talk about that the twilight time at the temple could have started as early as 1.30 in the afternoon, because there was a whole lot of lambs that needed to be killed but you have this and Jesus says to his disciples I want you to prepare for the Passover this meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples now let me make a quick caveat here because some of you know your text and you know that when it comes to the details of Jesus's last week in connection to the Passover and the Passover meal in particular the Gospel of John is a little bit different than the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are known as the synoptic Gospels, these three of the four biographies on the life of Jesus, all have the details the same, but John seems to be off by a day. I actually don't think John is off, but I don't have time to go into all of the reasons why. So I just want to acknowledge for those of you who know your texts, I know I'll get questions after the service, just know that there's a whole other thing I think John is doing, and I think John is in line with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Jesus has them prepare, which would under, be understood that the lamb would have been slaughtered in the temple, and now you have the Passover meal, which is the 15th day. This is Jesus' last supper. That's what we call the last supper. And during this, because we're talking about the 15th day, they have unleavened bread. By the way, this is the reason why here at Central, whenever communion is celebrated, we use unleavened bread. Because this is a, last, this is a Passover Seder, last supper of Jesus. During the meal, Jesus takes the bread and he says, this bread is my body. For the Israelites, the bread symbolized their freedom. For Jesus, he goes, my body is now going to be the symbol of that freedom. And what's more, in the Hebrew scriptures, they contested that leaven was symbolic of sin. So unleavened bread was understood to be bread without sin. There's all of these endless connections, and it's why communion is done that way here. But Jesus has a Passover Seder with his disciples on the beginning of the 15th day. They probably started around 7 p.m., probably went to midnight. Jesus then takes his disciples, and he gets arrested in Gethsemane. It's probably midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. Jesus is then taken... He has a religious trial with the Sanhedrin and the high priest and all of that. And then he's sent to Pilate. All of this stuff is happening during the middle of the night. And then we recognize that Jesus is going to be crucified. Now the crucifixion is on this day of Passover. Because the meal happens on the 15th day. This is when God went through the ranks of Egypt and Israel back in the Exodus story. It was on the 15th day. That's when Passover kind of officially begins, even though you've already killed the lambs in the temple. It's also the first day of unleavened bread that goes for the seven days. But Jesus is crucified, and he's crucified on Passover. This is fascinating. And writers pick up on this. Notice what Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes in 1 Peter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is all Passover language. 
Paul goes right in with the language in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the crucifixion takes place on Passover, but the details in the text are even more revealing because Mark in particular says Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. Darkness came over from noon until 3, and Jesus took his last breath at 3 p.m., You say 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. to any religious Jew and they would go, no way. That's the exact same time of our Tamid sacrifices. These were two sacrifices that were supposed to be done every single day in the temple and it was the foundation for the entire sacrificial system where these two sacrifices, one was done at 9 a.m., the other one was done at 3 p.m. And Mark tells us that the Passover lamb, if you will, of Jesus, dies at the exact same times, starts on the cross and ends on the cross, when the foundation of the entire sacrificial system is being represented in these two sacrifices. And what we read in Hebrews 10, 12 is, but when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, the entire sacrificial system was now rendered useless because the pure, unblemished Lamb of God had died once and for all for all of the sins, past, present, and future. This is what's amazing. Yeah. This is what's going on. This is what they're starting to figure out. This is, I'm sure, what Jesus is helping them to figure out is what has gone on here. Now, we can say then that Jesus dies on Passover as the pure, spotless Lamb of God for the sins of humanity. But, friends, we are just warming up here. Because check out what happens next. You go, okay, well, now that I know what day this took place, Wait a minute, there was a lamb selection day. What day was that? Oh, that was the 10th day. Well, when was the 10th day in the week? Sunday? No. The triumphal entry? Palm Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, when Jesus comes into town, he enters Jerusalem on lamb selection day, weeping his eyes out because everybody thinks he's going to go kill the Romans and Jesus goes I'm the lamb walking to the slaughter because I'm not going to kill the Romans I'm going to be killed by them and you go well is there anything else going on well he probably wouldn't have asked that question if the answer was no right so then we go all right so what else is going on here well Jesus dies at 3 p.m and then according to Jewish law he has to be in the ground by sunset the burial has to take place because the next day is the sabbath and according to jewish law you're not allowed to bury on the sabbath so joseph of arimathea and nicodemus scramble get to Pilate, and say can we take the body and can we bury it and Pilate says yes you may and they get jesus into the ground before sunset happens now we've said this is passover this is also the first day of unleavened bread I've already given you the example of Jesus at the last meal talking about the bread. Is there any other place that Jesus talks about bread? Why, yes, there is. John chapter 6, verses 48 and 51. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
He talks about giving himself as the bread. And then six chapters later, John records for us, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The bread has to be in the earth in order for new life to spread, in order to burst forth. So in addition to saying that Jesus enters Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, he dies on Passover, we can also use the language of that Jesus is planted during unleavened bread as the bread of life. So Jesus is in the ground. Day one is that Friday. Day two is the Saturday. And then you go, well, is there anything else on the calendar? Well, there's something called first fruits that is going to jump into the mix. First fruits is this festival that takes place on the day after the Sabbath following unleavened bread. So you go to day one of unleavened bread, you go to the very first Sabbath, Saturday, and then you go to the day after that. So it's always Sunday, but it is contingent on how close it is to those other festivals based on where they land in connection to Sabbath. Now, what was the festival of first fruits? Well, you celebrated the beginning of the barley harvest. So you cut a sheaf of grain from your field and you offer it in thanksgiving to God at the temple. And it represented the hope of the future for the people. Why? Because barley was your very first crop of the year. You have barley and then you have wheat and they're about a month and a half apart in that way. And then you're going to have later on at the end of the summer, into the fall, your grapes and your figs and all of that that will come. And so the barley heads first. It's your very first crop of the year. And if the barley heads, it gives you hope for your future that the rest of the crop is going to come in. And then you have something really cool that happens on the Sabbath before first fruits. The prophecy of Ezekiel 37 was read in the temple liturgy as a way of reminding the people of what God is going to do. If you know what Ezekiel 37 is, and by the way, this part is from Jewish literature. All the rest of the stuff about the Jewish festivals I'm pulling from Exodus 12 with the Passover stuff, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16. Two very key chapters that I'm pulling this information from. This one is from Jewish literature right here. And it said on the Sabbath, you have the Valley of Dry Bones. The most emphatic chapter in the entire Hebrew scriptures talking about new life bursting forth. And among that passage that is being read, you have this in Ezekiel 37, 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So on Saturday, the people at the temple are pleading with God to bring forth new life because the very next day is first fruits. And you all know that Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week, which you probably didn't know, is that he rises from the dead on the festival of first fruits. 
And the apostle Paul just launches off on this idea when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now here's the argument he's making here. And this is one of the misnomers that a lot of people have. Jesus is the only person in human history who has ever experienced a resurrection. Resurrection by definition is that you have died and have been brought back to life never to die again. The other people in the biblical story who were dead and brought back to life, that is not a resurrection, that is a resuscitation. They died, they came back to life, but you know what? They died again. Which that would really stink, wouldn't it? Like having to go through the death process twice. Jesus is the only one to be resurrected. And what Paul says is that he is the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. You have hope for a future because if you are united with Christ, you share in the same fate of Jesus. And because he is the first fruits of the resurrection is to come, then Paul makes the argument, you can take great comfort in knowing that the resurrection for you is also coming as well. And for Paul, he just launches on this idea of being the first fruits. So, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He dies on Passover as the pure, spotless Lamb of God for the sins of humanity. He is planted during unleavened bread as the bread of life. And Jesus arises on first fruits as the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. And God orchestrated this entire week to absolute precision and perfection. Look what God did. These hardly ever fall like this because the 14th day has to be a Thursday in order for a first fruits to come three days after the 15th day. And Jesus says, I'm going to arise on the third day. It is absolutely mind-blowing when you see the great care that God took in putting all of the details together because God knows how to plan a story. Now, some of you are sitting there going, okay, this is amazing. But what does it have anything to do with the transition? Like, I thought this was a series on transitions. What does this have anything to do with transitions? The answer, everything. It has everything to do with the transitions in our lives. Let me show you how. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah is a prophet who did his work roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah recounts a vision that he saw, that God actually gave him something he saw of the future. It's really cool. And what you have here in verse 1, it just says this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. In the last days. Talking about the future, and then Isaiah is going to recount what he saw. You can read that on your own time. We're stopping right here because this phrase is amazing. It says in our English translation, in the last 
days, which is talking about the future. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't literally say that. Literally in Hebrew, this is what we read of the beginning of verse 2. In the behind days. That's how they talk about the future. In the behind days. And you're sitting there going, how in the world did they get that? Right? Here's what they're doing. Here's the idea in the Hebrew consciousness. When we talk about the future, right, as 21st century good Western people, we talk about, we turn our face to the future, we're walking into the future. But in the Hebrew mind, you do not turn your face to the future, you turn your face to the past. Because over and over and over in the Hebrew scriptures, God says, Zakar, 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 it's the Hebrew word, remember, 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 remember. And in the Jewish mind, it's that if you forget your past, you have no future. And the reason why that God says, do not forget, is because God's saying to them, do not forget how I rescued and redeemed you from your slavery in Egypt. Do not forget how I came to your aid in your time of need. Do not forget how I preserved you during those 40 vulnerable years in your desert. Do not forget how I provided for the needs that you had. Do not forget. And in the Hebrew consciousness, to turn your back on the past is to forget the ways that God has met you. And what you have is in the moment you turn your back on the past is you start looking into an undefined future. And the concern is, is that you will get wigged out by this undefined, nebulous, gray area of I don't know what's next. And so Isaiah says... You put your back to the future because if you can be reminded of all of the ways that God has met you here, then you will have confidence that God would meet you there. And Isaiah's way of talking about this is he says, you know what we're called to do? We're called to live back to the future. (laughs) Michael J. Fox don't have anything on Isaiah. Some of you younger kids are like, I don't get it, all right? I'm sorry, you've so lost culture. Go watch Back to the Future. I was like trying to get some like really cool Nike kicks for today. Way too expensive, way too expensive. But Isaiah's saying you live back to the future. That's how you orient yourself. And friends, this isn't just transitions. This is life in general, but particularly in the midst of those transitions. Next month, the end of July, it's going to be one year for my wife and I where God began to uproot our story to leave Central. A year. I was thinking about this this week going, it can't be a year, and it was. We had this two-week time period starting the last week of July. Without any clue anything was changing, God was uprooting our story from Central and West Michigan and was going to eventually move us to Nashville. It was the second week in August that I shared with you that God was calling us on and we didn't know what God was doing. We finished the end of October. We moved to Nashville in January. And I can tell you today, almost a year out, that almost with a little bit of pockets of, okay, there's some some little clarity pieces there that I can tell you by and large, we have no idea yet why God moved us to Nashville. 
Many of you, as I was walking in, hey, what's going on? I'm like, ah, nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know. And one of the things that I have found in this whole journey is that on the mornings where I have been like despairing, God's like, Brad, what are you doing? You're facing the wrong direction. Because I'm going, God, I don't know what's next. I don't know why you moved us from Holland and from Central. We loved West Michigan. We loved the people there. I love the people I got to work with. I don't know why you've moved us. We know it was the right decision, and still we have been totally at peace at that decision. But I'm going, God, I don't know what's next. It just feels so fuzzy, like am I supposed to take a step in this direction and this direction? God, what in the world are you doing? And God's like, yeah, you will wig out facing that direction. Fear will be induced in your system. Brad, turn around. Turn around and be reminded of how clear I have been in your story at those pivotal moments, how I've took care of you. This isn't the first time I've called you to do anything like that. How did it work out for you the first time you decided to move to Holland? All right, how did that work out? Oh yeah, God, that one worked out really well, thanks. You remember how I surrounded you with that amazing community in Holland? Yeah, yeah, I had all of those details planned out. And, and Brad, don't lose sight of the fact of everything I've done in the little grander story of the Bible. And I think this is what Jesus was doing with the disciples. Look how God has just orchestrated this whole last week of my life. Look at all of the details that have come together. This is how God works. This is a God of detail. This is a God of timing. And God is inviting us, do you trust me? Do you trust me to put your back to the future and know that I've got your back? And that if you orient yourself to the past, you don't live in the past, get that. You do not live in the past. You orient yourself in the past. God goes, allow everything I have done to give you great comfort and great confidence that you can walk backwards into the future knowing I've got your back, I've got your story figured out. Do you trust me in the midst of this transition? And that's what God is inviting all of us to. Me, you, this isn't just in transition. This is how we're supposed to live life. Back to the future. This is what God calls us to do. And so here's one of the things that I would like to invite you to do sometime today or tomorrow this week is that I know this is resonating for some of you. <laughs> You've got that look in your eyes like, uh-huh, yeah, uh -huh, yep, I've got that. Here's what I want to suggest that you do. Is that... If you normally pray sitting down, I want you to pray standing up. And I want you to go, okay, God, this is for our time and purpose. This is future. Let me talk about all the ways that I'm being wigged out right now. All of the nebulous, gray, I don't know what to do. This is where my fear is. What about finances? This is risky. This is this. This is Just name that and say, God, I'm naming that because as I'm facing forward, that's my reality. Now, God, as I turn around, would you highlight all the things that I need to understand right now of what you've done in my story so that thing doesn't paralyze me like it is right now? And write those out and read those, that list every single day until you're feeling a sense of confidence that you can give God your back. He's got your back and you can walk backwards into the future. One other thing I'll recommend is this. This has been a spiritual practice for a long time where people will go to bed at night and as soon as they hit the pillow, they'll take two to three minutes and they'll go, God, let me run through my day and will you highlight to me all of the ways that you have met me during the day that I've missed because I've been moving too fast. 
And you just sit there and go, God, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that conversation, yeah. Oh, that letter came in or that email or that, yeah, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. And when you can live life in such a way with eyes seeing more of what God is doing, you begin to cultivate a greater awareness of how God is meeting you in your story. And it gives you confidence that you can walk backwards. And friends, this is what I believe Jesus was doing with his disciples. Because for the disciples, Jesus is like, okay, let's review the story. This is what God is doing in the story. They knew something was brewing back here. And I know for our family, we know something's brewing. I mean, God has taken care of us. I've had the great privilege over the last several months. I've been speaking all over the country, teaching the Bible, teaching communication to business leaders and pastors. It doesn't seem to be the thing. There hasn't been that eureka moment. Oh, that's why you moved us to Nashville. I know I'm going to continue to teach the Bible. I know I'm going to continue to teach communication. But I know something is brewing back here because of what God has done here. And I believe the disciples knew something was brewing back here because of what God had done here. And I want to show you that last piece in that transition puzzle. And part of this is around, or actually a large part of this around, is that there's actually another festival coming. You see there was Lamb Selection Day, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the very next festival is what's called Shavuot in Hebrew, or it's called the Festival of Weeks. And in the Festival of Weeks, or Shavuot, this takes place seven weeks, 50 days after Passover. So the way that you count this is you go seven weeks, and then it's the next day. That's the 50th day. Weeks in Hebrew is Shavuot. That's why it's called the Festival of Shavuot, or it gets translated the Festival of Weeks. Now, this is also, along with Passover and what's known as Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles, which is your fall festival, wedged between these is Shavuot, and it's one of the three main pilgrim festivals, where God says, I want all of the Jews to stream up to Jerusalem to celebrate. Many of them actually stayed in Jerusalem, after Passover, because they came from all over the world in order to celebrate Shavuot, some left and came back, but it's a really big deal. And interestingly, Sukkot, the fall festival, is seven days. Passover and unleavened bread is seven days. If you add the temple sacrificing of the lamb, that's eight days. This is the only one of the major pilgrim festivals that isn't a week long. In fact, it's only a one-day festival. And in the Jewish literature of the day that we have, the, that the liturgy started at sunrise at the temple because it's only a one-day festival. And people have traveled from all over in order to celebrate it. You don't sleep in. It's a one-day festival at the temple. It concluded the barley harvest and anticipated the rest of the wheat harvest and in good Jewish festival fashion. It recounted something in the agricultural calendar, but it also recounted an event connected to the Exodus story. In this case, it was something that reminded them, it remembered the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai. When you recount the Passover story, God rescues and redeems Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, you can count from the time they leave Egypt to the time they arrive at Mount Sinai to be at least 45 days. In Exodus 19, it talks about three days that the people are consecrated and then God comes and meets with them. So we're dealing with at least 48 days. The idea of 50 days is really close in the text. It's not clearly spelled out, but it's there. But what we have in Jewish literature more than 200 years before the time of Jesus 
it's recounted that during the festival of Shavuot, they are remembering and recounting that it was the 50th day that God met Israel at Mount Sinai and gave them the gift of his word. So this is what they're celebrating. Now, when you read Exodus 19, God comes and meets with the people at Mount Sinai. There is wind, there is lightning, there is a cloud, there's a blowing of a trumpet, the mountain is shaking, and all of this is recounted in Exodus 19 when you read. And so on the festival of Shavuot, they actually read Exodus 19 and 20 as part of that morning liturgy because it was the festival that commemorated how God had given his word at Mount Sinai. And the people understood that what God did at Mount Sinai is he married Israel. She was God's bride and the bridal gift, God's gift to his bride on the wedding day were his very words, the most precious gift that God could give to his people on their journey ahead was his word. And that's what was Shavuot. Now, we started off the Acts reading this morning. Jesus spent how many days with the disciples before he ascended? 40. 40. Well done. Thank you for the enthusiasm, little guy. Love that gusto. Now, that was Acts 1. That's the start of volume 2. The end of volume 1 is Luke chapter 24. Notice the last four verses. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the, what does it say? Temple. Interestingly, continually at the temple, praising God. Why are they continually at the temple? Well, on the one hand, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus spends 40 days, at the very end, before he ascends, Jesus says, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Do not leave until you get it. But interestingly, the detail is given to us at the end of Luke that the disciples stayed at the temple. Why? Because another festival was on its way. And if God had done all of this in Lamb Selection Day, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, then what happens when Shavuot comes? Well, let's see. Come with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we will conclude our time here. Buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be amazing. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came. The word Pentecost in Greek, Pentecostes. It's the word that means 50th, as in the 50th day. Pentecost is not a new holiday, friends. This is Shavuot. This is the biblical festival of Shavuot. How many day festival? One day festival. Jews have streamed up from all over the world to celebrate Shavuot. The New Testament calls it Pentecost. How fascinating is that? They were all together in one place. One place? No way that can be the upper room. Temple liturgy says you start at sunrise. Peter's going to tell us in a few minutes that it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They're all together, and Luke tells us they've been staying at the temple continually. <laughs> Verse two, suddenly the sound 
like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is where the confusion comes. The nickname for God's temple was called the house. It's like Michigan football stadium. We just simply call it the big house. And everybody goes, that's Michigan stadium. Yep, the big house. All you had to do is say the house and everybody knew you were talking about the temple. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Get this, tongues of fire, we've got fire. We have a violent wind. The idea of a violent wind is things are shaking. All of a sudden you go, this is the same language from Exodus 19. When God showed up at Mount Sinai, the people on the morning of Shavuot are reading Exodus 19 and the story is happening all over again right where they're at on the temple. And what God did at Mount Sinai, he is now doing at Mount Zion. And all of a sudden, the story is happening again. And all of a sudden, it goes on and it says that all of these different Jews were staying in Jerusalem and it goes through all of them that were there. And then verse 12, it says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Verse 13, some however made fun of them and said, oh, they've had too much wine. Because if in doubt, throw the drunk card, right? If you don't know what's going on, just throw the drunk card. Now, also we know from Jewish literature is not only starting after sunrise are they reading Exodus 19 and 20, but they're also reading Ezekiel 1 and 2. Because in Ezekiel 1 and 2, we have a technicolored vision that God gives to Ezekiel that has wind and fire and all of the elements of Exodus 19. It's why they also read it during Shavuot. And what's utterly fascinating about this connection is that Ezekiel experiences it. He falls to the ground and God says to Ezekiel, I want you to stand up and I want you to address the people. Notice what happens. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. By the way, what happens at 9 a.m. in the morning at the temple? Oh, that's right, the trumpet goes forth. What happens in Exodus 19 when God descends on Mount Sinai? A trumpet went forth. Again, all of the elements are right here. And Peter says it's only nine in the morning. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Peter launches into this unbelievable sermon of Pentecost. And after he is done, what happens? How many people respond to his message that God did through him by anointing him in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that had just descended down on the people? How many people became followers of Jesus this day? Does anybody know? Shout it out. Go ahead. 3,000 people. Now, did everybody respond? No, but at least 3,000 people did which is amazing. By the way, 
Where can you put at least 3,000 people in Jerusalem? Oh yeah, only one place, up on the Temple Mount. There are, Josephus tells us at times that there may have been 40, 50, 60, 70, I think Josephus at one time says maybe like 100,000 people. You have Jews from all over, so at least 3,000 respond, and it says that they were immediately baptized, which makes total sense from an archaeological perspective. This view is from the east looking west. Now what we have here is a view from the south looking north. This is the modern day Temple Mount today. Had the privilege of being there two and a half weeks ago. And we got to go down to the southern excavations and here just south of the temple, on the, just below the steps going up to the temple that Jesus would have used, they have excavated more than a hundred mikvaot. This is Jewish ritual immersion pools. This is one of those such there. There's been more than a hundred that have been excavated. So it makes total sense that these people stream off the Temple Mount to the south and they are baptized right there. Or they go off the northern end into what a place called known as the Pools of Bethesda, which were understood to be a giant mikvaot center. And then there was also one to the south of this picture at the Pool of Siloam. And you have three thousand people who are baptized who experience the presence of the holy spirit and now you step back and you go okay let's let's recount this for a moment because this is unbelievable you go back to the exodus story and at passover god rescues and redeems israel from their slavery to pharaoh and 50 days later at mount sinai god gives the gift of his word, the most appropriate gift for their people on the journey ahead. And then when Jesus dies during Passover, God rescues and redeems all of humanity from their slavery to sin. And 50 days later at Mount Zion, God gives the next most appropriate gift for their journey ahead. He gives his holy spirit because when God redeems God gives gifts and we have been given the word and the spirit to do everything that God has called us to do and not only did God plan all of that out to utter brilliance but does anybody remember after God met with the people at Mount Sinai, what happened? The most devastating thing that happened at Mount Sinai? Something called the golden calf. Israel committed adultery with her husband on that honeymoon. And it is an utterly devastating story that ends 3,000 people died. And at the next Shavuot that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved. God was redeeming the golden calf because God doesn't leave any details unturned. Yeah. This is how God works. And this is a God who can put all of these details together. And friends... There were so many more connections that had to be cut from today's sermon. But this is a God who knows how to string the storyline together. And he wants to know, will you put your back to the future?
Will you allow God to take care of everything that is here because he knows how to take care of everything here? That the same God who orchestrated all of these details in the Jesus story is the same God who has the rest of the story figured out. Not only for all of humanity, but for you as well. That you can trust God with your back because he has your back. And you can walk confidently into the future backwards because the God who has met you and the rest of human history here is the God who is already waiting for you there. Because friends, that's how we live back to the future. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for just the ability and joy that is ours to just allow the text to reveal what it's doing, to give us this amazing sense of confidence and comfort that when we go through our transitions, when we go through these times where the future feels so undefined and it can be fearful and paralyzing, we don't know what to do and we can feel so overwhelmed and we can be like, God, where are you? I don't see where you're at. I don't see where you're calling me into. You're a God that says, hey, I think you might be facing the wrong direction turn around, be reminded daily of all the ways that I am meeting you and have met you on that journey and just recognize that the same God that has met you then is the same God who's waiting for you in your future. So walk backwards into the future. Give me your back. I've got your back. You can trust me. I am a God who is never early and never late. The timing may not be what you want, but I'm doing something in you. I will then do something through you. It will all be worth it. Hang with me. Just walk backwards. I've got it figured out. God, continue to infuse us with that awareness as we go about our week this week. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you. And it's in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus that everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, can I have you stand, please? And we're going to close with a word of blessing. But before that, you came on a great Sunday because it's Popsicle Sunday. So some of you saw that as you were coming in. You're like, what's up with the popsicles? Here's the deal. A number of families and people from this community are going to Guatemala in August. And this is our opportunity. Our. See, I still feel like I'm part of the community, right? It is our opportunity today to give to that. They're going to be building houses, passing out food, doing vacation Bible school in Guatemala. Again, this is in August. And this is our opportunity today to provide financial resources, not only for them to go on the trip, but to do what God is calling them to do in Guatemala. And this is one of the things that I've always so loved about this community is that we do not focus on ourselves and we don't focus just on West Michigan. We are out for the whole world and this is one of the tangible expressions that we go to the ends of the earth just like the students are going continental U.S. this is an opportunity to go to Guatemala for us to bless them so take a popsicle and give to this and allow God to continue to work through us as a body here and around the world so my friends and family here at Central thank you for the joy and honor of being with you today it has been so good to be back and I pray that as you leave here today, that whatever transitions you're navigating, wherever it feels nebulous and gray and fuzzy and you feel fearful and paralyzed and you're like, where is God? I pray that you would turn around. 
I pray that God would you give you the ability to see all of the many ways that he has not only met you in your story, but how he is daily meeting you in your transition. And I pray that you would have the courage to confidently walk backwards into the future because God is already there, he's already got your back, and he's going to work everything out. May you experience that in the deepest part of your bones, both now and forevermore. Grace and peace be with all of you. Enjoy your popsicles. Have a great week. Thanks.